Hello and welcome to episode 101 of History on Fire. Today I have a confession and apology and a request all wrapped into one. Ever since bringing History on Fire out of all paywalls, I've been scrambling for ways to make it work financially, justifying the amount of time I pour into research and creating episodes and all that kind of stuff. You know, back at the beginning of History on Fire, I had made a point to only take ads for products that I used for real, that I truly enjoyed, because, you know, I never wanted to pitch to you stuff I didn't believe in. In the past year, I haven't been able to do that, and hence the apology. Because since money has been tight, I've had to accept any and all ads, you know, products that I like, products that I'm neutral to, all of the above. And just to lighten up the mood, I guess, if you have ever watched a masterpiece that is the movie Idiocracy, which by now appears more like a documentary than a movie, but in any case, you'll get my next reference. Things have been bad enough that if uh, Brondo paid for an ad in which I have to sing and dance to tell you that it's got electrolytes and that's what plants crave, I'll do it. Needless to say, I'm not super proud of myself, and I like to at least revert to taking ads only from companies I either like or at least feel neutral toward. Now, for that to happen, I need to rely primarily on listener support. We are not terribly far from meeting the bare minimum budget needed. You know, it's been a year and we haven't met it yet, but we're almost getting there with Patreon. So I probably need another 100 people on Patreon or Substack. And then it would considerably lighten the pressure in terms of the ads. So for those of you brave souls who feel like being part of this group that help keep the podcast viable and uh, somewhat independent, there are two ways to go about it. You can either support on Patreon or Substack, whichever one you prefer. I put the same bonus content on both platforms. I, on Substack, I also use it for writing articles and, uh, you know, you get an email every time I publish something directly into your inbox. On Patreon, I publish the same exact stuff over there. So either way, you can pick one or the other. And if you are in the mood for as little as $5 a month, which realistically, that's what you give to a bad waiter that you don't particularly like if you go out to eat one time in a whole month, you can uh, really help the podcast a whole lot. The links for the Patreon and for Substack, I recently, in a rare moment of intelligence, I created a link tree. Uh, link tree is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash my name, which is Daniele Bolelli. So again, link T-R dot E-E forward slash D-A-N-I-E-L-E-B-O-L-E-L-L-I and all the possible links from Instagram to Substack to Patreon. I recently started a YouTube channel if you want to check it out. I also put bonus content up there. It would be sweet. Speaking of Patreon, the folks supporting at the highest possible level are Mark Chang, Chimmy Moxham, Charles Accorso, and Justin Bourne. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for helping me. Um, speaking of, I was just whining and complaining about ads. This is something that it's not even an ad. I don't actually get paid, but I really like this company. 
So I just want to give a shout out to DakotaPureBison.com. Uh, these guys, I fully believe in. They are the quality of the products they offer are fantastic. If you are in the market for anything bison related, check them out. Dakota Pure Bison code HOF10 gets you a 10% discount at your order at DakotaPureBison.com. Check out all their products; they are awesome. A uh, couple of last things before we get going. One is that on November 4th, I will be part of, uh, I will be a featured speaker at the Intelligent Speech Conference. Uh, this is an online conference that brings together podcasters and their fans. It's fully online, taking place on November 4th. The theme for this year is contingencies, when history meets the backup plan. There's going to be a whole variety of people giving speeches, and uh, I think they have uh, eight roundtable discussions, three keynote speakers, some 32 individual sessions. So there's a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to be one of the keynote speakers, and I'll also be part of a roundtable discussion with Mr. Sebastian Major from Our Fake History. He's a great guy, great podcaster, really brilliant storyteller. So I look forward to chatting with him. If you want to check out this conference, check it out at intelligentspeechonline.com and uh, you can use the coupon code FIRE to save 10% on their tickets. One more thing I should mention regarding today's episode. In about roughly a month, if I remember correctly, a movie is going to be coming up on the exact same topic that we're going to be tackling today. Today I tell you all about the real history of it, so that when you watch the movie, because this is going to be a Martin Scorsese movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, De Niro, you know, it's a big, huge uh, blockbuster event, and it touches on some really fascinating history. However, of course, I'm going to tell you the real story today. So if for whatever reason you decide, I want to watch the movie without knowing anything about it first, you may want to hold on to this episode and listen afterwards. Now, the story is pretty clear. Like anybody, if you take a look at a review for about three seconds, you figure out what the story is. There's not exactly a big mystery there. But in case you don't want it, considering yourself spoiler warned. Now, having said all that, again, sorry for me whining about the whole ad thing earlier. Um, I just, you know, want to be honest and straight up with you. So hopefully soon enough, the support on Patreon and Substack crosses a threshold and things get a little more relaxed. While waiting for that to happen, make sure you buy Brondo. It's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. On that note, let's hop into the episode. Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Let's go set history on fire. 
odds are that by the time most of you will get to listen into this episode, the movie Killers of the Flower Moon will already be out. It's not out at this moment when I'm sitting down to record, but it's only a few weeks away. It's due to be released on October 6th, 2023 in theaters, before moving on to Apple TV shortly thereafter. My guess is that the movie is going to be a big hit. It's directed by the legendary Martin Scorsese, starring uh, Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, so big Hollywood stuff, for sure. The movie itself is based on a 2017 book by author David Gran which is also entitled Killers of the Flower Moon, with a subtitle that say The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. Gran has done an incredible job researching and digging up what was up until recently a little-known story that took place in the early 1900s in Oklahoma, which involves a murder mystery and unusually wealthy Native American tribe oil, corruption, a bloody conspiracy, and the early days of the FBI. He truly deserves a Pulitzer Prize many times over for the work he has done. But that's assuming that prizes like the Pulitzer in specific or success in general follow any kind of logic. Killers of the Flower Moon did not get its well-deserved prize. Instead, one of the worst books I've ever read, so riddled with mistakes that it's pretty much historical fiction, ended up becoming one of the most popular books on Native Americans of the past few years and the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book of Critics Circle Award. But in any case, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, I'm going to keep my angry prejudices to myself regarding some books, actually not prejudices because I've read the book, and but my angry opinions to myself, and I'll try not to get distracted. The point here is that Gran has resurrected a powerful story that could have otherwise ended up buried in the annals of history. And in today's episode, I get to tell you the history behind the movie and uh, and behind, well, I guess behind the book is a weird way of phrasing it because the book is a history. He did write a history book, heavily researched, so I'll get to tell you this tale. Let's start with the tribe at the center of our tale, a people known in English as the Osage. In their own language, they usually would refer to themselves as the Wazazi. All descriptions of them from the early days and even down to present days refer to them as physically imposing. You know, the 19th century painter George Catlin described them as the tallest race of men in North America, there being many of them six and a half and others seven feet tall. Evidence seems to indicate that they used to live possibly as far east as Pennsylvania in ancient times, but eventually moved westward over the centuries. According to some traditions, their ancestors may have been part of the people who inhabited pre-Columbian cities such as Cahokia. By the 1700s and 1800s, they were in places like Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. The basis of their economy was a bit of uh, hunting and gathering, but also farming, so they, they followed both traditions at the same time. Increased contacts with the United States did not bode well for the Osage in the 1800s. 
In the classic rhetoric of the age, President Thomas Jefferson had said he would act as a good father to his children. But this was just words and otherwise empty promises. Very quickly, the Jefferson administration forced the Osage to give up their lands between the Arkansas River and the Missouri River. They told them, either you sign the treaty and lose the land, or you are an enemy of the United States. And you really want to find out what happens to enemies of the United States? So with their only alternatives being loss of land or extermination, the Osage picked up and packed and left and they lost almost a hundred million acres of land and eventually resettled in Kansas. The US government of course promised the Osage that you know this was a one-time thing but once they got to Kansas they could keep their new homes forever and ever. But this promise was about as good as Jefferson's promise to act as a caring father toward them. One problem they ran into is that following the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, both abolitionists and pro-slavery forces invaded Kansas, trying to flood the territory with their own people, so that in the upcoming election they could vote to either outlaw or extend slavery in the area. In the following years during the Civil Wars, the Osage found themselves geographically in between the two sides. They try to stay neutral, neither wanting to cast their lot with the Confederacy or the Union, but what they got for staying neutral was getting raided by both sides. So all of this was bad news for the tribe, since they started getting pushed out and again forced to sell. So the government pressured them into signing treaty by which the tribe would quote-unquote agree to give up their lands in Kansas. This kind of reminds me of uh, the football gang in uh, Charlie Brown, you know, where over and over again uh, Lucy tells Charlie Brown that she's going to hold the football, and then every time he goes to kick the football, she pulls the football away and he ends up flying and landing badly and getting hurt, and then... This happens every single time. Every single time Charlie Brown is like, I don't want to do it. You're going to just take the football away. And Lucy's like, no, no, don't worry. This time is different. You can trust me. And every single time she does it. And then she laughs at him and say, why did you trust me? That was a dumb idea. This is basically what happens between the tribes and the US government. You know, the same story gets to be replayed over and over again. And every time it's like, okay, this is the last time you have to move. This new land, you're going to get to keep it. We promise you. And regularly the football gets taken away. So this combination of continued forced migrations and diseases ended up wiping out about two-thirds of the tribe by the late 1800s. After the Civil War, as I mentioned, they were forced to sell the land in Kansas and they were removed to Oklahoma to lands that no one wanted. The government took good lands from them and pushed them into some godforsaken place where no one else wanted to live. But this is where the story gets a twist. As it turns out, the universe as a weird sense of humor. What was considered worthless land in the 1870s turned out to be extremely valuable by the end of the century. Now, no one could tell by looking at those lands in the 1870s, 
But what people didn't know is that what underneath the ground, what was found underneath the ground, was very precious. So eventually, a discovery was made that the Osage lands in northeastern Oklahoma sat on some of the largest oil deposits in North America. The timing couldn't have been better for them, because this was when oil was becoming an extremely valuable commodity, and the car industry was just about to boom. So, overnight, the Osage find themselves plenty rich. They even have uh, white people as domestic servants. There's a big shift in the racial hierarchy thanks to their newly found wealth. So their efforts to screw them over actually had made the Osage incredibly wealthy by pushing them into these lands no one wanted that suddenly turned out to be extremely valuable. So this is a feel-good story I'll be telling you today, right? And not so fast. There's a quote by Tolkien in the book The Hobbit that seems to apply here. The quote goes something like this. But the years of peace and plenty were not to last. Slowly the days turned sour and the watchful nights closed in. Thor's love of gold had grown too fierce and sickness had begun to grow within him. It was a sickness of the mind. And where sickness thrives, bad things will follow. This is where, you know, if you watch the Hobbit movie, you hear this line being spoken. Now, the part that does not apply is the Thor's love for gold, because this does not refer to the Osage. But the idea that the years of peace and plenty had their days numbered, and that the presence of wealth in their lands attracted a monster, attracted what Tolkien referred to as the uh, where sickness thrives, bad things will follow. Inevitably, that's what's gonna happen here. The newly found wealth of the tribe will attract some of the worst people on earth trying to come to prey on them. One of the things that made all of this possible, that makes the entire tale I'm going to tell you possible, is that in their infinite wisdom, members of Congress decided that the Osage were just too stupid to handle their own money, so for their own good they would be legally restricted to, uh, in their ability to do as they wish with their wealth. Tribal members would be required to be assigned a non-Indian guardian who would be in charge of managing their money. On the surface of it, I mean, to be fair, the way I just described it, sound just exploitative and insane, and it turns out to be that it was exploitative and insane, but on the surface they could make at least a semi-logical argument for it. They said, look, it's very easy to scam people who have never had to handle that kind of wealth before, so we're really doing it for their own good. We, we want to make sure that they don't get scammed, and so we will uh, provide guardians to manage their wealth for them until they learn how to do so themselves. A bit paternalistic, more than a bit paternalistic, a lot paternalistic, but, you know, you can at least make a logical argument, you know, so far so good. The problem is that in the name of protecting them from possible scams, the government set up a much bigger institutionalized scam. You know, because of course, enormous potential for corruption existed when 
these guardians would get to decide how to use someone else's money, quote-unquote, for their own good. Samo's age women married white men, and they felt good that their overseers would be their husbands. I mean, this is family after all, so that was a way to get around the problem that was created by the government requirement to have uh, a money manager for them. Their husbands would be the money manager, so what could possibly go wrong? Well, we are about to find out. Usually, when people become wealthy, their life expectancy goes up, thanks to better access to healthcare, good food, and so on and so forth. This is not going to be the case for the Osage. Between the 1910s and the 1930s, they would experience an insanely high death rate. And this is not just the result of random bad luck. This period in their history, in fact, will become known as the Reign of Terror. Officially, this period lasted between 1921 and 1926, but there's plenty of evidence that it actually extended much further likely between 1918 and 1931. The overwhelming majority of the suspicious deaths taking place as part of the reign of terror will never be investigated, so we don't know exactly what happened in many of those cases. Killers of the Flower Moon, both the book and the film, focus on a small subset of these deaths, and the reason being is that, at least in this case, we get to find out what happened. We get to have some resolution to this story. So, let's dive into the specifics of this particular story, set within the larger context of the reign of terror among the Osage during those decades. The lead character in our tale is an Osage woman by the name of Molly who had married a white man named Ernest Burkhart. Back in 1918, uh, Molly's sister Minnie had died from what doctors refer to as a wasting illness, which is a nice way of saying that doctors didn't really know what killed her. Minnie was only 27 years old, had been in great health, and she went downhill very quickly. The family was left wondering what happened, but there were no clear-cut answers. And after all, the doctors are saying, yeah, yeah, just bad luck, this happens, you know, wasting illness, wasting illness. And so it was, the whole thing was done, there was nothing they could do about it. Three years later, tragedy would strike the family yet again. And this time it would involve Anna, another one of Molly's sisters. Anna was 34 years old, just a year older than Molly, and for a while she had dated Brian Burkhardt, the brother of Molly's husband, Ernest. Anna had a reputation for enjoying going to clubs, dancing, drinking, you know, very much the embodiment of the 1920s flapper lifestyle. One day, in May of 1921, she went missing. Days went by, while her family kept hoping that she would turn up, returning from some extended parting. Things, however, did not work out that way. Hunters found a decomposed body near a creek. It was Anna. 
she had been shot in the back of the head, execution style. Authorities found the tire tracks nearby, but back then few cops were trained in forensics, so they didn't make a cast of the tracks to try to figure out which car they belonged to. Of course, they were also ignorant about fingerprinting or pretty much anything else, to the point that they didn't secure the crime scene or took pictures. To add insult to injury, the mortuary in town grossly overcharged Anna's family for the funeral, since they knew that the Osage had money and so they gouged them out of the equivalent of nearly $80,000 in today's money just for the funeral. This, by the way, was not at all strange for the times, since there was a whole business popping up around the reservation of people who would... Uh, essentially take advantage of the fact that the Osage had money and just gouge them in any possible way with inflated prices. Around the same time, an oil worker spotted something in the brush. When he went to check it out, you know, when he went to check out what was going on, he realized that was a rotting corpse. A bullet hole between his eyes left little doubts about how he had died. Soon enough, he was identified as one Charles Whitehorn, an Osage man who had been murdered shortly before Anna. Based on the bullet holes, people estimated they both had been killed by a 32 caliber pistol. Considering that they were both wealthy tribal members in their 30s, murdered around the same time by the same caliber handgun, some people guessed that the killings were related. The families of both victims promised a reward to anyone helping find who did it. In a show of solidarity, one of the most important non-native citizens in the area, a certain William Hale, promised his own reward. Hale was the uncle of Molly's husband. He had made money in cattle ranching and had a reputation for almost been a nice guy, you know, he had a reputation for helping the tribe before they started making money with the oil leases, so back in the old days he came across as a regular good Samaritan, donating money to schools, hospitals and various charities. He said, we got to stop this bloody business, he announced as he hired a private detective to try to find out who was responsible for the murders. But neither the detective he hired, nor the one hired by Molly, ever uncover enough hard evidence to come to a conclusion. So by now Molly only had one surviving sister, Rita, who was married to an Osage man named Bill Smith, and their own mother, Lizzie. Actually, scratch the surviving part, at least as it applies to their mother, since Lizzie didn't live much longer after Anna's death. Two months after Anna's death, Lizzie died too. And of course, many people believed uh, the obvious, that this was the result of heartbreak over the death of her daughter. You know, she had already lost a daughter three years earlier, now Anna, maybe it had all been too much grief, and uh, as a result, Lizzie had died. Others, however, including Rita's husband, Bill Smith, suspected foul play, perhaps via poisoning. But again, Poisoning may have not been such a crazy idea, since in the following months several tribal members turned out dead by suspected poisoning, but no toxicology exam was done to confirm it. And yet, 
more and more people were becoming convinced that there was some ugly reason for some of the strange deaths taking place all over, all over the reservation. In 1922, an Osage man named Joe Bates was offered whiskey from a stranger, took a sip, and started frothing at the mouth before falling over. This is just one of many stories of this kind. So in light of the growing numbers of unusual deaths, some Osage asked for help from Bernie McBride. McBride was a white man who had made money in the oil business and had always been good to the tribe. So in light of that, I mean, McBride was indeed a true friend to the tribe, and so he agreed to go to Washington to pressure federal authorities to look into what was happening in Oklahoma. So he packed up, he went, he arrived in Washington, D.C., and before he had time to meet with any officials, he was kidnapped and murdered. Just to make sure he was really dead, someone had stabbed him over 20 times and then had crushed his skull with blows. Probably more than one someone, likely several people involved. The Washington Post would call this the most brutal in crime annals in the district. And beginning to put two and two together, it also included an article with the headline Conspiracy Believed to Kill Rich Indians. So not only tribal members were turning up dead at alarming rates, but now even a wealthy white guy who had agreed to help them was murdered in the nation's capital, far away from Oklahoma. So it was definitely becoming clear to everyone that something was happening on a rather dark scale. And the bloodshed was nowhere near done. In February 1923, a car was found in the prairie with uh, a guy within it shot in the back of the head, a 40-year-old Osage by the name of Henry Rowan. Henry Rowan, incidentally, had been briefly married to Molly some 20 years earlier. So everyone is in fear as the murders continue and no one is sure who's behind it or why. Among the people who are most vocal, about the fact that something nefarious was at play and something had to be done, was Bill Smith, which if you remember, I know I'm tossing a lot of names at you, but there are indeed many characters in this story, but to simplify and help you remember, Bill Smith was Molly's brother-in-law, uh, her sister's Rita's husband. You know, Bill and Rita understood that their outspokenness may have painted a target on their backs, and their suspicion was reinforced when their guard dog was found poisoned. So concerned about their safety, they left their isolated house in the country and moved into town for added security. Still didn't help them. In March of 1923, the silence of the night was broken by an explosion. Someone had blown Bill and Rita's house to bits, killing Rita and a household servant to live with them. Bill was burned all over, but survived for a few days before dying in the hospital. So by now Molly was alone, other than her own husband and children. All her sisters plus her mother had either been clearly murdered or died under suspicious circumstances. The governor of the state made a show of sending a special investigator to solve this crime spree. 
but it quickly became clear that the investigator wasn't going to help, since he himself was a crook, busy taking bribes from all kinds of criminals, and not really interested in solving the case. As author David Gran writes, it soon became clear that the state's special investigator in charge of solving the Osage murder cases was himself a crook. He was convicted for bribery, then he was pardoned by the governor, and seeing the error of his ways, the investigator now turned his life around and... No, just kidding. Once he got out of prison, he robbed and murdered a lawyer and returned to prison. And just to raise the level of confidence in authorities, around this time, Governor Walton himself was also impeached for corruption and for having been bribed by oil interests. Now, none of this was unusual. Oil bosses, both politicians, left and right, including the Secretary of the Interior around this time, and would open up lands for them so that they could exploit them. The only thing unusual about this story is that Governor Walton had acted so carelessly as to actually get busted for it. You know, some sheriffs, investigators, and now even the governor of Oklahoma were busted for corruption. But for each one of them that was caught, ten more laughed all the way to the bank. In this context of uh, institutionalized corruption, a lawyer named W.W. Vaughn stood as a notable exception. As a prosecutor, he had made an honest effort in trying to solve the strings of murders targeting the Osage. In June of 1923, an Osage friend of his, 46-year-old George Bigheart, called for him. Bigheart was dying from poisoning in a hospital in Oklahoma City and wanted to speak to Vaughn about some of the leads he had uncovered, about who was behind the killings. Before rushing to the hospital, Vaughn told his wife where he had hidden the evidence he had been accumulating on the case, and ominously told her to dig it up and turn it to authorities if uh, something were to happen to him. He had also hidden money for her and their ten children. At the hospital, Big Heart spoke with Vaughn for several hours before finally dying. Vaughn called the Osage County Sheriff, telling him he was coming to visit him with all the info necessary to solve the murders. The following day, the train that he was supposed to be on arrived, but there were no traces of him. Within two days, his body was found close to the railroad tracks, about 30 miles from Oklahoma City. Someone had thrown him off the train and killed him. When his widow went to retrieve the documents and the money he had hidden, she realized that someone else had already taken them. So clearly, either his killer had forced Vaughn to spill the info about the hiding place before murdering him, or, perhaps even more unsettling, whoever killed him was someone who Vaughn had trusted and to whom he had voluntarily confessed these secrets. However it played out, his widow was left to raise ten kids on her own and she had no money. The Osage felt a debt of gratitude toward the man who had sacrificed his life for their sake. So even though his efforts had not paid off, several of them 
pool some money together and kept his widow and children alive by providing for them. Some of his kids even ended up living with those aged families and being incorporated into the culture. And in the meantime, the body count among the Osage and among anyone trying to help them kept climbing to the point that the reservation had an insane murder rate for a relatively small place. And the press would describe the murders as being as dark and sordid as any murder story of the century. And I also quote, the bloodiest chapter in American crime history. Afraid that she was next, Molly stopped going to church or inviting guests. And it's at this juncture in our story that a federal agency named the Borough of Investigation, which would later become the FBI, got involved in this tale. J. Edgar Hoover, the highly controversial boss of the agency, would send Tom White, who was a special agent in charge of the Houston office, Hoover is such a weird and disturbing character that he probably would deserve an episode all of his own, but this is not the time or place, so I'll resist getting sidetracked and will stick to the business at hand. Hoover told Dwight his job would be to head the investigation in Oklahoma, and a failure would not be tolerated. White, incidentally, is the character in our story that was originally planned for Leonardo DiCaprio to play. But in classic DiCaprio fashion, he turned down playing what could be seen as the stereotypical lead for the story, and instead chose to play a much more controversial role. When Wine got to work, one thing became quickly clear. The common thread of the murders was rich Osage tribal members. But the very different way in which they were killed and the fact that they were killed in different parts of the state suggested that likely there wasn't a single killer behind all this. Someone was probably hiring assassins or possibly multiple someone were hiring assassins. There were multiple people involved. So all this was happening against the backdrop of uh, endemic corruption. You know, remember the business I mentioned at the beginning of how the government ruled that the Osage were incapable of handling their own finances and needed non-native guardians to manage their money? It didn't take quite long to realize that the system bred a shocking level of theft and abuse. Clearly not every single one of the money managers for the Osage was corrupt and, you know, some of them actually tried to help people. They were actually doing what they were supposed to. But case after case after case showed also a very different pattern. Honesty and treating people right were the exception more than they were the rule. An Osage leader said the blackest chapter in the history of this state will be the Indian guardianship over these estates. There has been millions, not thousands, but millions of dollars of many of the Osage dissipated and spent by the guardians themselves. And then uh, in another case, somebody said uh, the money draws them and you're absolutely helpless. They have all the law and all the machinery on their side. Tell everybody when you write your story, uh, he's saying, tell everybody to a journalist to whom he was uh, giving this quote. He says, tell everybody when you write your story that they are scalping our souls out here. 
because the reality is that the law was usually on the side of the money managers, with the judges involved as well. The Bureau of Investigation discovered that the judges would appoint those who had supported them in getting the job and getting elected. They would give them the roles of overseers of some of the wealthiest of his age. And the idea was that it was a payoff. It was a way to pay them back for the support uh, in uh, getting the job as becoming a judge. If uh, the overseer was busted for corruption, the judge would can then make the case go away. So it was a perfect system in which uh, some uh, local citizens would support somebody, get them a job as a judge, and then they in turn would use their position to benefit them screwing over members of the tribe in the process. So White put together a team which, uh, which was made of several different agents, including one, the only one in the borough who was native, uh, a certain John Wren, who was part youth. Everyone assumed a fake identity, everyone arrived already undercover and tried, because, you know, they realized that if uh, people knew that they were agents, nobody would speak to them. Uh, so they had to pose as somebody else in order to be able to poke around and try to gain some information. One of the cases that they dedicated most their attention was the Anna Brown murder. The story, what they had discovered, was that Brian Burkhardt, um, was Molly's brother-in-law, had been, uh, had been seen with Anna on the night when she disappeared. But officially, you know, his version was that he had taken her straight home from uh, after she visited at Ernest and Molly's house, dropping her off somewhere between 4.30 and 5 p.m., and then he had gone into town in Fairfax, where he was seen with his uncle, with his brother, a few other people, and they went to a musical. So basically there wouldn't have been time for him to uh, go to the creek, shoot Anna, and return to town before all of these things went down. So his alibi looked good. It seemed like he had nothing to do with it. However, some witnesses, including a couple of local farmers, said that they saw Brian with Anna in the car afterwards, at a later time on that day. So White starts thinking maybe Brian has taken her home, but then uh, went back out to get her again. So if that's true, it means that Brian had lied when he had said that he had left her home between 4.30 and 5 and then uh, he was done for the day, like he didn't see her anymore. So it starts to look like something doesn't fully add up. And even more witnesses started volunteering information suggesting that Brian and Anna had actually gone out again going drinking at a local speakeasy and they stayed there until the early hours of the morning. Possibly even Brian's uncle, Hale himself, had been with them. And there's also there was a report that the third man was seen in the car with Brian and Dan as they were returning from the speakeasy. Now, this was not in any way, shape or form revealing what happened. You know, even if, uh, even if Brian was the guy, why did he do it? Uh, did he have something to do with the other murders? Who else was in the car with them? You know, any little bit of information that they started digging up only raised uh, more questions. 
but at least it was something. So White also felt that someone possibly having access to the files in the investigation was passing information to other people. There was even a local lawyer who admitted having seen some internal documents from the investigator. So White started tightening things up, only releasing information to the people he trusted the most, and, uh, and then dug in and tried to see what else he could find. One break came when a private investigator named Pike was arrested for robbery and was uh, interrogated until he confessed that Hale had hired him in the past not to solve the Anna Brown's murder, but actually to hide uh, Brian's involvement, Brian being Hale's nephew. So that start casting a light in a direction that nobody had anticipated before, or at least not law enforcement. Here you have uh, Brian and Hale possibly having something to do with it. Now, Pike said, look, Hale never told me explicitly that Brian had been involved in Anna's murder. However, the stuff that Hill was asking him to do was strongly suggesting that it was necessary to cover Brian's track. So if, these, uh, if all this information was truthful, then we had a strong lead on a suspect. And speaking of lead, the lawyer of Bill Smith, you know, Molly's brother-in-law and Rita's husband who had gotten, who had gotten killed when his house was blown up, Shortly before dying, when he was in the hospital, he had told his lawyer that he only had two enemies, William Hale and Ernest Brockhart. So that also suggested that they may have something to do with the second murder. And another doctor also admitted hearing the same thing. On top of it, a nurse told the investigators that Hale had approached there and uh, ask her, you know, has, uh, has Bill Smith said anything about who his killers might be? Basically suggesting that he was a little too interested into finding out what Bill Smith had said before dying. And another piece of information got uh, White's ears perked up. He found out that Hale was the sole beneficiary of Henry Rowan's $25,000 life insurance policy. Now, Henry Rowan, if you recall from the earlier part of the episode, was yet another one of the age who had been murdered at this time. Now, Rowan was found with a bullet in the back of his head, and Hale had immediately cashed in on some $25,000 life insurance. Now, clearly, if anybody had motive, that would be him. Of course, this is something that the local sheriff had never investigated, nobody had investigated up until this point, which by now White was beginning to think this was not just uh, local law enforcement being incompetent, this is local law enforcement probably being on the paybook of a few people, in this case being uh, on Hale's paybook, because he would have been the most obvious person to uh, in whose background they should have been looking into. And to add uh, gravity to this, uh, to this piece of information, the insurance salesman who had concluded the business said that 
you know, when Hale had declared that he was Rowan who had insisted on uh, on picking Hale because he was a close friend to be the beneficiary in this insurance, he said, that's just not true. Hale came to me asking for the policy. And then he had to go and essentially shop around to find a doctor who would be willing to sign on such a policy because... You know, Rowan had a history of uh, alcoholism. He had been uh, he had been driving while intoxicated in the past. So many doctors were like, I'm not so sure about signing on this. But again, Hale had thrown enough money around to get a doctor to sign off. And then he had promptly cashed in as soon as uh, Rowan was found murdered. Today's episode of History on Fire is sponsored by Hillsdale College. Hillsdale College offers free online courses on a whole variety of topics, from the US Constitution to economics, from philosophy to history. The college has been around since 1844, and uh, what they have done now is take some of the key classes that are normally taught face-to-face and offer them to the general public for free online to anyone who wants to take them. Over 3 million people have taken a Hillsdale College online course already. There are 39 courses to choose from. They are easy to follow, self-paced, and uh, you can start and finish whenever you want. Go right now to hillsdale.edu forward slash history on fire to enroll. There's no cost and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu forward slash history on fire to register. One more time, that's hillsdale.edu forward slash history on fire. Now, this was certainly something. However, there was still no evidence that Hale had done it. You know, there was no witnesses, no forensic evidence, no nothing that either Hale or anybody associated with him had done it. He had, certainly he had a motive, but it's one thing to have a reason for killing someone and another one to actually do so. And also, even had he done this, uh, was that just the only case? Did he have anything to do with the other murders or was this a one-time thing? These are all things that still needed to be explored. Now, one detail that White uncovered that started getting the wheels in his head spinning was the fact that before Rowan had been murdered, Hale had tried to buy from him his share in the tribe's uh, oil fields and all of that, which was worth a ton of money. Now, Technically, that was illegal because the law didn't allow buying or selling of uh, the shares. However, Hale was pretty sure that the law was going to be changed soon because there were enough uh, powerful people with enough money trying to make that happen that he was fairly sure that this would change. Hale had once said, I, like many other good men, believe it would only be a short time until Congress would pass a law permitting every educated Indian who had a certificate of competency to sell or convey his or her mineral rights to whom they wished. And yet that had not happened. And, you know, there was a setback because this law that everybody expected to pass did not pass. So White begins to think maybe he'll turn to the insurance scam because he couldn't get what he wanted, and so he went to plan B. 
And if Hale's interest was primarily into the oil fields and the right to the oil fields, well, in that case, something about all the murders in Molly's family also began to make sense, because what was happening is that with each one of the sisters being killed, the inheritance started consolidating in one direction. First, uh, it went to Molly's mom, but then she died as well. And so all the inheritance from the other sisters and the mom went to Molly and Rita. And then Rita was murdered, so everything went to Molly. Now, why would Hill care if the money went to one tribal member or another? Well, remember, Molly was married to Hill's nephew. And so now the question is, was the plan to kill her as well, so that all the money would end up in his nephew's hands and probably shared with Hale himself? As he started considering this, White was getting uh, eerily convinced that all of this was beginning to make a little too much sense, almost like all of these things were not random murders anymore. They were part of a very rational plan to get rid of these people in order to get all the money into Molly's husband's hands. I'll read you a quote from uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. It says, White couldn't determine whether Ernest's marriage to Molly, four years before Anna's murder, had been convinced from the outset as part of the plot, or if Hale had prevailed upon his nephew to betray her after they married. In either case, the plan was so brazen, so sinister, that it was hard to fathom. It demanded that Ernest share a bed with Molly and raise children with her, all the while plotting and scheming against their family. During this phase of the investigation, White had to struggle wading through trying to figure out which testimonies were accurate, which ones were made up, which ones maybe were accurate but were not helpful. And he had a little bit of all of them. For example, there was an outlaw by the name of Dick Gregg who was in jail at the time. He volunteered to cooperate with the investigation. He said that Hale had offered him and his gang some $2,000 in order to kill Bill Smith and Rita. And they had actually declined. They said no, because that crossed the line even for their standards. They felt that killing a woman for money was something that they didn't want to do. The problem with this is that this kind of testimony could be easily discounted since here you are taking the word of a criminal who was trying to get a sentence cut in exchange for testimony. So not the most reliable thing in the world. Now maybe it was truthful, but maybe not, and either way the optics weren't great. So that was one problem. Another problem was that White found out that people who could have actually given him good information had died under mysterious circumstances. Number one on the list was a man by the name of Asa Kirby. Kirby, supposedly according to some information that White received, Kirby was the guy who had uh, created the bomb that was used to blow up the, um, the house belonging to Bill Smith and his wife. Okay, well then arrest this guy, interrogate him and hopefully get him to confess or to turn on Hale or something, right? Well, problem was Kirby was dead by now, but the way he died suggested uh, some interesting machinations behind the scene. 
What had happened was Kirby had been shot dead while trying to rob a jewelry store. Okay, so far so good. The part where it gets interesting is that Kirby had been told by somebody that the jewelry store was an easy target and that there were diamonds there, and was even told of a specific time of the day when there would be nobody around and it would be easy to break in and, um, and steal the diamonds. That somebody was William Hale, the guy who supposedly had also commissioned to Kirby the creation of the bomb. And to make the whole thing even weirder, Hale also then turned around, went to the shopkeeper, and told him that somebody was about to rob him, told him when that was going to happen. So by the time Kirby broke into the store, the owner was waiting with a shotgun and just shot him dead. So it very much looks like if all of these pieces of information were true, and White seemed to be inclined to believe that they were, it seemed like Hale had played a perfect game to get rid of somebody who could have testified against him. White also received some information regarding another inmate, a certain Bert Lawson, who told him an elaborate story about how Hale had asked him to kill Smith, and then how he set it up, and how he was actually the guy who planted the bomb, and you know, the whole thing looked extremely promising. Uh, unfortunately, it turned out not to be true, as we are going to be seeing. So, you know, part of the problem of doing an investigation like this is that for every good tip you get, you get another one that's not, and it's not always easy to be able to verify and understand who's telling the truth and who isn't. In the meantime, Molly kept getting sicker and sicker. She sent a message to her priest saying that she believed somebody was trying to poison her. And there was actually some suspicion that there were doctors who were visiting her. Incidentally, these were doctors paid by Hale, supposedly to inject her with insulin because of she had diabetes, but some people thought they were actually slowly poisoning her. And this seemed to be confirmed when Molly was sent to a hospital away from the care of these doctors, and she immediately started feeling better. In his report, one of the agents wrote, It is an established fact that when she was removed from the control of Hale and Burkhardt, she immediately regained her health. Agent White wasn't feeling super safe regarding some of the testimonies he had gotten, like especially the loss on one, he was a little unsure about whether that was truthful or not. However, Molly's priest told him, look, if you don't do something at this stage, she's going to get murdered. So... White decided to rush to get some arrest warrants for Hale and Ernest Burkhardt for the murder of Bill and Rita. This happened at the very beginning of 1926. He did this knowing that some parts of Lawson's story didn't fully add up, but White was afraid that Hale would get away with it and possibly murder Molly in the meantime. He did get, as a plan B, another outlaw by the name of Blackie Thompson, I guess there were a lot of outlaws in this part of this of the country at this time, who told him that Hale had asked him to do the killing. And he but he eventually had turned him down. Now, when White arrested Ernest Burkhardt, Ernest didn't really seem all that phased. He didn't seem to believe that White had anything on him. 
But once he was put face to face with Blackie Thompson, his entire demeanor changed. He realized, because I guess, you know, when they told him that Lawson was testifying against him, he knew that Lawson had lied, so that there was nothing to it. But when Blackie Thompson showed up, well, he knew that he had told the truth. And so now Burkhardt freaked out and said that they were that he was ready to confess. During this confession, Ernest, who, in case you're getting confused by all the names, just to remind you, that's Molly's husband, it became clear that he was uh, under the spell of his uncle William Hill. He said how he had worshipped him growing up, how he always relied on his advice for everything. He was basically his little minions in a lot of ways. And Burkhardt had understood come to understand some of what Hill's plan was, but basically he just did whatever Hill told him. You know, he had uh, somewhat protested when Hill had shared with him that he was planning to blow up um, Rita and Bill Smith. However, Hill got over it pretty quickly by telling him, look, what do you care? Your wife is going to get all the money. I'm doing this for you. And then, you know, pulled all the right strings that he knew how to pull in order to get... Barker to fall in line. And so fall in line he did. He even carried the message to some outlaws that Hale was going to hire in order to blow up this couple and carry out the job. And so Burkhardt, you know, for all intents and purposes, while he didn't have a direct hand in the murders, he facilitated them by carrying the message, getting the person that Hale wanted to do the job and all of that. During his confession, he said, uh, uh, speaking about the night when uh, the Smith house got blown to pieces, he said, when it happened, I was in bed with my wife. I saw a light on the north side. My wife went to the window and looked out. And she remarked how she believed uh, somebody's house was on fire. As soon as she said that, I knew what it was. So that's part one, but it doesn't even stop there. Burkhardt also confessed about how Hale had set things up to get uh, Rowan's murder. So if you remember that story, when you know the Rowan had been killed for insurance money and Burkhardt confirms the whole tale. He said, yes, I know who did it. And it talks about his uncle setting it up by hiring some local criminal named John Ramsey was uh, the trigger man in this whole thing. So White sent out a call to get uh, John Ramsey arrested, and after they brought him in, he realized that Ernest Burkhardt had confessed, he realized there was a ton of evidence against him, so he also confessed and said, yes, I did kill Rowan, that was something that he asked me to do. He said, uh, you know, he had uh, hang around with, with Rowan for a while, and then uh, when uh, Rowan was ready to leave, he just shot him in the back of the head. And one of the things that st- struck White in this confession, it was how Ramsey seemed to think not much of this whole thing. Felt like, come on, killing an Indian, does that really count for something? He told uh, during his confession, why people in Oklahoma thought no more of killing an Indian than they did in 1724. Meaning, come on, yeah, I killed that guy, but does it really count if it's an Indian? 
that was more or less the message. And he kept also, Ramsey kept using the term the Indian, rather than referring to Rwans by name, almost as a way to justify the whole thing, almost to make the point that it's not really murder, is it? Burkhardt by now was confessing everything, so he even gave up the name of another criminal in town named Kelsey Morrison as being the guy who had shot and killed Anna Brown. There's also evidence that Morrison, in a completely separate plot but related in terms of having to do with the murder of Osage tribal members, he had murdered an Osage man just so that then he could sweep in and marry his widow, and then murdered her as well in order to inherit her wealth. So Kelsey Morrison was another piece of work in this whole story. The only thing that Burkhardt did not confess was having any knowledge or having anything to do with Molly being poisoned. Now, there are two ways to explain it. One chance is that he just couldn't admit it to himself, that he knew about it, he was part of it, and he just didn't want to deal with it. The other part is that maybe he didn't know about it, maybe he was part of all of the other schemes by Hale, but he didn't know this one, and instead Hale had kept him in the dark and set up Molly's murder with a doctor that he was paying without earnest knowledge. That's a possibility, we just don't know. Regardless, Molly just didn't believe that her husband had anything to do with anything. She said, my husband is a good man, a kind man. He wouldn't have done anything like that, and he wouldn't hurt anyone else, and he would never hurt me. And, you know, when the lawyer asked her, so you love your husband? And she said, yes. So this is, I mean, makes the whole story even sadder in a way, because she even as the confession is coming out, she just refuses to believe it. She cannot believe that her husband would be part of a scheme that had essentially had killed every member of her family. Molly found herself in a fairly terrible position because the white folks in her community who were loyal to Hale clearly didn't like her by now, and at the same time, many of the Osage tribal members also didn't like her since uh, in the face of overwhelming evidence, she was still loyal to her husband, who by now was becoming clear had been part of a conspiracy to murder several tribal members. So she was kind of in no man's land, with not really fitting in uh, either world. Agent White had other worries on his mind, though, because at this time a judge ruled that the case against Hale had to proceed in state court rather than in federal court, as uh, White had wanted. So this was a problem because Hale controlled much of the state and he could pull a lot of strings in the state, whereas in federal court not as much. So this was bad news for White at this time. Also bad news for White was the fact that Hale started throwing his money around by hiring a lawyer for John Ramsey the man who supposedly had shot Rowan. And this had an immediate effect on Ramsey, because Ramsey had actually confessed to the killing, but as soon as the lawyer was hired, he changed his tune and said, no, 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 I never killed anybody. Uh, White and some of the other federal agents have been bullying me into making these confessions. 
and so basically he just recanted the whole thing now making it so that white would have to prove his guilt in court which of course was a whole lot harder than just having the guy say i did it Ernest Burkhardt had even told White that Hale had reassured uh, Ramsey, saying, don't worry, I have all the connections needed, I have everything fixed all the way to the governor, so you don't need to worry about getting convicted. But the one who was uh, really the center of everybody's attention was Ernest Burkhardt himself because he was the one that Hale was worried about, because he was so close to all of the plans, he knew everything that Hale had been doing, he was the one that he needed to flip. So, apparently he did, because at one point, in a highly irregular move, the judge allowed Hale's attorney to have a private talk with Burkhardt, even though he wasn't representing him or anything, and after he came out of this private talk, who knows what was being said in there, but once he came out, Burkhardt flipped, lost his determination to testify, and backtracked immediately, much like Ramsey had done. Uh, he actually said that uh, the agents had threatened to kill him, Hale will sing the same tune, Ramsey will sing the same tune, so essentially they're all saying, look, there were a couple of confessions true, but they were all obtained thanks to the violence of the agents who had either tortured us or threatened to torture us, and that's why we confess, but it wasn't true. This was a fantastic gift for Hale defense, and so immediately one of his friends in the Senate, the U.S. Senator from Oklahoma, William Pine, who he himself had made his wealth with oil, and he was part of, uh, he had been one of the staunch defenders of the guardianship system by which white folks would serve as uh, money managers for the tribal members, and he was clearly close to Hale, he started pushing the government for uh, white and his agents to be fired from the borough, saying these guys are clearly bad people who are using violence to obtain confessions, we need to get rid of it. Them. So this is getting really close to shutting down the whole investigation. But just at this time, when things are looking really grim, White got Kelsey Morrison to testify against Hale. And not only that, but Morrison also acknowledged that he had been the trigger man in the murder of Anna Brown, and that Brian Burkhardt had been with him. So I'll read you from the testimony. Basically what happened, I'll get to the testimony in just one second, but basically what happened, they say, is that he and Brian had been hanging out with Anna, they got her really drunk, and then they took her to this ravine, and now I'll read you the testimony. Morrison said he raised her up, uh, speaking about Brian, like cause she was almost falling over, and he just propped her up. So the defense attorney asked, pulled her up? Yes, sir. So everybody's listening, like, okay, what's going on? And the lawyer continues, did you tell him in what position to hold her while you shot her in the head? Yes, sir. You stood there and directed him how to hold this drunk and helpless Indian woman down in the bottom of the canyon while you got ready to shoot a bullet into her brain? Yes, sir. Then when he got her just in the position you wanted him to have her, then you shot a bullet from this 380 automatic? 
Yes, sir. Did you move her out of after you shot her? No, sir. What happened when you shot her? Turned her loose and she fell back down. Just fell over. Yes, sir. Did she make any outcry? No, sir. Did you stand there and just watch her die? No, sir. You had satisfied yourself that with the gun you shot the bullet into her brain you had killed her, didn't you? Yes, sir. And so then the uh, lawyer asked, okay, what did you do after shooting her? And he replied, I went home and ate supper. Morrison's ex-wife testified, essentially confirming all this account. She said that she had been in the car nearby and she says, I stayed in the car alone about 25 or 30 minutes until they returned. Anna Brown was not with them and I never saw her alive again. And his sex-wife also testified that Morrison had made it clear that he would kill her if uh, she ever said anything about this. Now, at this point, things turn in a big way for the prosecution, because Ernest Burkard passed the note to a deputy to give to the prosecutor that he wanted to talk. And what had happened is that his and Molly's four-year-old daughter had just died of an illness. The pressure of the trial was getting to him, and he basically didn't want to lie anymore. So he decided to change his plea to guilty. So he went back and forth a couple of times. He pled guilt, I mean, he confessed and acknowledges guilt, then he said he didn't, and he had been threatened by the FBI, but now he goes back over again. So... Burkhardt was sentenced to life imprisonment and hard labor. And there was something about him that even though he was going away, almost there was, a, witnesses describe a sense of relief in him, almost like he couldn't live with the guilt anymore. And however, when he tried to make eye contact with Molly, as they were taking him away, finally stuff flipped in her brain and she realized that despite their intention to try to see him as innocent by now. I mean, even he was saying he wasn't innocent. So she wasn't quite exactly ready to return the eye contact or ever talk to him again. Now, I'm somewhat simplifying the whole narration for the sake of not killing you with too many details. The fact is there were multiple trials going on. There was one for Ernest Burkhardt, then there was one for Hale, there was one for, uh, not only that, not, they weren't just one, in some cases there were multiple trials, so I'm trying to streamline the narration and putting it a little more cohesively, but just to give you an idea of how some of this stuff was going, in his trial that took place in state court, despite overwhelming evidence of his guilt, uh, the jury couldn't bring itself to find Hale guilty. They were stuck. Some people thought he was guilty and some people did not. Same thing regarding Brian Burkhardt killing of Anna Brown. The feeling among those age was that it would be very, very hard at the state level to find 12 white men who would be willing to convict another white man for murdering a tribal member. This was just, you know, the general attitude was uh, the level of racism of the time, the level of, it was just not going to happen at the state level. Never mind the fact that Hale himself had tried to bribe the jury, and some people think successfully. 
So as a result of all of this, as some of this stuff was coming up, the judge allowed for a retrial. So while this particular trial did not end up with a guilty verdict for Hill, it wasn't over. And as this was happening, the Supreme Court ruled that the trial against Hale for the murder of Rowan could be done in federal court, which this would deprive him of all his contacts at the state level and his ability to influence the outcome of the trial. At the end of a long legal odyssey, the jury found both Ramsey and Hale guilty of murder. However, rather than giving them the death penalty as was customary in cases that were so gruesome, they gave them life in prison, which is still not a walk in the park, but is definitely different from a death penalty. And then in regards to not being a walk in the park, uh, I'll get to it in a second, but these guys are not going to do life in prison, as we're going to see soon. In the meantime, during the trial for Anna Brown's murder, Molly had to sit there and listen to her by now former brother-in-law, Brian, recount how they had murdered her sister. And, you know, the thing that probably got to her is the fact that, you know, when, uh, when they had all found Anna's body, and so everybody had gone there to see, Brian had stood right there next to her, faking being full of grief and sad over her death. And in the meantime, her own husband had been there comforting her while knowing full well what had happened. So, not surprisingly, at this time, she divorced uh, her husband, Ernest, and, uh, you know, she realized how it all went down and she was horrified by what had happened. This was a huge win for the Borough investigation. This was, you know, they had uh, come in, taken the case away from local authorities who had been corrupt and couldn't get anything done, and had secured a conviction in a really high-profile murder case. J. Edgar Hoover couldn't stop talking about this case. He used it as a propaganda campaign for how, mainly for how he he was great. You know, he often barely even mentioned the agents involved, and it was all about the borough itself, which was kind of a code word for he himself, since he was, he saw himself as the heart and soul of the whole thing. He would uh, remain its chief for an extremely long time, even at the time when he became the FBI. So this was really a J. Edgar Hoover propaganda campaign to show the importance and the power of this newly created agency that he was running. And don't get me wrong, they had done a good job. They had secured a conviction in a situation that was anything but assured that it would go well for the prosecution. They had some, you know, there were reasons to pat themselves on the back. I just find it funny how J. Edgar Hoover essentially turned this whole thing into an effort to push himself up, to prop himself up, to let everyone know how great he was and how important he had been in this whole thing, which is not exactly the way things went, but in any case. Uh, Agent White eventually quit his job and found a new job as a warden of Leavenworth Prison, which is one of the biggest federal prisons in the United States, or definitely was at this time. Molly remarried with uh, a man from the Creek tribe, 
And not only that, but something else happened in her life that was uh, meaningful, that within a few years, the courts acknowledged that the system of guardianship had created tremendous abuse. And so they started allowing individual members of the Osage tribes to run their own money, to have a say-so how it was spent. So eventually, by the age of 44, Molly was in charge of her own money, and she had become uh, American citizens at all effects. Her former husband, Ernest Burkhardt, was uh, eventually released and paroled just a little over a decade after being convicted and lived well into his 90s. He himself was paroled after 20 years, which, of course, 20 years in jail are not exactly a small thing, but for having murdered an extremely high number of people, and we don't even know for sure how many, because you know we know of a few that he was definitely responsible for, but it seems likely that there were more. 20 years seems maybe he got away lightly, actually, when you think about it. In any case, the Great Depression wiped out a whole lot of the wealth that the Osage had accumulated. Um, some of the oil fields started drying up, so that business eventually died out. They did manage, especially in recent years, they did manage to start casinos that have been profitable and that help fund the tribal government. And also in 2011, after a long legal battle, they were able to successfully win a case against the government when uh, the government agreed to settle a lawsuit for how they have mismanaged the oil fields and had to pay to the tribe some $380 million. Author David Grant, though, makes an excellent point about this old tale, which is the borough, they celebrated victory because they were able to convict Hale and a few of his henchmen. But the reality is that the number of cases they had solved compared to the number of murders that had been taking place in these years was nothing. You know, there were many, many, many more cases that were left unexplained. Dozens, some people suggest possibly hundreds of tribal members have been murdered in these few years. Also, you know, it was never sold who had killed McBride when he had gone to Washington to lobby for the tribe who had murdered Vaughn when he was on the train bringing back the evidence and somebody had thrown him off the train. So all of this stuff remained unsolved. And it would remain unsolved in the future because the borough decided they were done with this. The story was over, they had won, and that was the end of it. So the author of Killers of the Flower Moon said that by digging into the archives, he started finding evidence to convince him that in at least one of these cases, a banker who had been a friend of Hale and was uh, busy exploiting the Osage at the time, he was on the train with Vaughn, and this is somebody that Vaughn had considered a friend. And so the author puts all the elements together and essentially makes the case that this is the guy who killed him. He was never prosecuted for it, but through some serious detective work, that's what the author of the book concludes. And honestly, when you go through his uh, evidence that he lays out, it's pretty convincing. Now, the Osage themselves believed that there were many more murders, and not all of them had to do with Hale. Actually, probably the majority did not have to do with Hale. Hale was the guy who got busted. 
but there were many other people running similarly murderous schemes who were never caught. David Grant writes, these cases, he's talking about all the other cases that seem to be unconnected with Hill, these cases underscore that the murders of the Osage for their head rights were not the result of a single conspiracy orchestrated by Hill. He might have led the bloodiest and longest killing spree, but there were countless other killings, killings that were not included in the official estimates, and that, unlike the cases of Lewis or Molly Burkhardt's family members, were never investigated or even classified as homicides. So the general belief there that the author of the book, what he finds himself concluding, and many of the Osage tribal members seem to agree, is that there were hundreds of cases. And Hale and his associates being convicted, that was like a drop in the bucket compared to everything that had been going on. And in some way, there's also a bigger question behind all of this stuff, which is, yes, some bunch of individuals probably had been guilty of murdering tribal members, but behind all of the murders, the responsibility for what had happened did not just lay with those individuals, as guilty as they were. The bigger picture is the political corruption that had made all of this possible. You know, had the Osage been allowed to handle their own wealth, or had the guardianship program at least been run with some kind of oversight, the reign of terror would have not been possible. The murders were made possible by government policies, by sheriffs, by judges, by senators, and all kinds of other politicians exploiting these policies for their own financial benefit. So in some way, it's easy to get caught into the specifics of this one story, but really the bigger picture is in some way even darker than this one story itself. He really underscored that there was a pattern of corruption at the highest level of political office, and that's what made all these murders possible.